This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone is doing great this Monday evening, Tuesday morning, folks. We have a lot to cover today. We're going to keep deep diving into the history of eugenics, but I want to show you something very important that I came across, folks. So as you know, as you know, technocracy, uh, eugenics, the brain trust that was FDR's brain trust that helped create the New Deal, all forming out of Columbia University. Then we find it growing out of Harvard University, out of MIT. So tonight we're going to do a little dive into Harvard University, and it's really important because you're going to see who actually ties in to this stuff at Harvard University. So we're going to take a trip in the past, and we're going to look at what Harvard University was doing with eugenics, and then we're going to fast forward to the future and show what they are doing in part because I didn't investigate all of it yet. I'm going to show you what they're doing with transhumanism, and eugenics is really transhumanism in its purest form. I'm going to show you that as well. And we're going to show you who is behind some of the transhumanist um, projects going on at Harvard. And this is really important because it proves that this stuff is alive and well, that eugenics did not die with Adolf Hitler. That is not true, folks. We're starting to disprove the so-called... Uh, historians. I just believe they're the folks that are allowed to push the official narrative on behalf of our good old government, the government that is actually funding all of this stuff, folks. It is the state. Why? Because the state benefits by controlling the system of complete and total control. So I had a couple of conversations today, uh, one with Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays. I think she'll be coming on here in the next few days. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff, tie up a lot of loose ends for you. Uh, I had a call today with Dan Golvach, good friend of mine. He's been on the show before. His son, Spencer, was murdered by a four-time deported illegal alien. Dan actually campaigned with President Trump in 2015, knowing damn well that he probably would be screwed over, but he looked at Donald Trump as someone who was pushing the anti-illegal immigration message, border security, 
and things of that nature. So Dan lent his son's story to President Trump to try to get him elected. Uh, well, Dan is going to be on. He's been studying theology and geopolitics for over 40 years, uh, way before the unfortunate situation happened with his son, Spencer. So Dan has been doing a lot of research into this FTX story. He emailed me some more stuff today. And so he's on top of it. He's tying that into CBDC, and that ties right into the episodes we've done with Wide Awake Jim. So Dan is going to come on the show tomorrow. It's scheduled for tomorrow, Tuesday. I should be Excuse me, I should be interviewing him in the uh, early evening, and then we'll be able to get that out at the regular time, midnight, ladies and gentlemen. So we're going to work on that for you. That's going to be a fantastic interview. Dan is always fun to talk to, and I know he's probably got uh, 50, 60, 70 hours into researching FTX at this point, so it's something he's comfortable speaking about. And, you know, I'm interested in it. Uh, if Dan can tie it into everything we've been covering here, then I think it is worth my time to learn about it, and therefore it would be worth your time. I would never introduce you to something that I'm not particularly interested in, and Dan's been finding a lot of stuff. I'm sure you guys are digging as well. I know it's a hot topic. So if it ties into the stories we've been telling over here, then I will definitely... Uh, uh, entertain that folks on top of it i had a bunch of people reach out to me from pain.tv slash gold on twitter on telegram and other places thanking me for the story that i told about my wife and i's personal experience dealing with the rockefeller medical industrial complex so i'm really glad that that episode touched you guys uh, at least one of our midwives, probably two, are going to come on the show soon. My doula is going to come on the show. A good friend of ours that we made during this process who is an expert in homeopathy, she is going to come on the show. So I'm lining up a lot of guests in the uh, solution column, folks, in the solution column, because I want to start to talk about solutions to the problems that we face. And I want to talk about those from a realistic perspective. There might be some other exciting announcements on the horizon as well you know in the coming week or so i'll let you guys know about those in the meantime please leave us a five-star review and comment over at apple Podcasts. you guys have been slacking off come on the numbers are growing here i know there's thousands of you listening to this show so please just do us a favor and leave a five-star review and a comment there at apple Podcasts because it really does help folks and at the end of the day i have to put food on my table and if that is not not happening then i obviously cannot continue down this path so by leaving a comment if that's the least you can do it helps drive up the show more people listen and then i'm able to make a little bit of revenue off the uh, advertisements on the free side of this podcast and then as we move forward i will figure out other ways to monetize in this industry folks a lot of the podcasters are pretty much on the take. There's somebody behind them. We don't have that over here at pain.tv slash gold. So we make money off of the subscriptions and off of the ad revenue. Uh, Mike is in a little higher tier than me. He's been at it a couple of years. So he's able to do some host red ads and stuff like that. We're being transparent here. I have nothing to hide from you guys. So that's the way it works. If you'd like to leave a donation for the show or something, uh, you want to give something to my son, William, just 
just do so at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. And the link to that is in the description. All right, that's about it, folks. I don't have anything else to say on that front. My mother-in-law is here, which, by the way, I actually do want to mention this. All right, so my mother-in-law flew in from Poland yesterday. We picked her up. She had one big suitcase and then a small carry-on suitcase. And we get back to the house, and the next thing you know, she's unpacking her big suitcase, and I swear, it was like watching midgets, uh, midget clowns crawl out of a clown car. It looked like some kind of a Mr. Bean episode with like a never-ending suitcase with a false bottom. I don't know how she got this through security, because I think you're allowed like 45 pounds. I know when I went to Poland and came back, it was difficult, folks. She's pulling uh, French chocolates, uh, tea, like tea bags, uh, cookies, all kinds of treats from Poland uh, and from Europe. She's got a huge bottle. Uh, It was like a one liter bottle right so we don't really sell a lot of those here in the united states but it's half the size of a two liter bottle of soda it's a fanta bottle one liter full of my father-in-law's homemade whiskey then she's got another bottle almost the same size full of his raspberry sherry that he makes and so i'm like i don't even drink anymore what are we gonna do with this stuff so anyway we're having a uh, gathering for thanksgiving my mother and stepfather flew in from texas my father is driving in tomorrow from connecticut my brother-in-law's uh, parents live not too far from here we're all going to get together my mom rented a big uh, house like an airbnb so we're going to do a big uh, gathering for thanksgiving so that's going to be a lot of fun and my dad's already saying uh, i already got the cigars to celebrate he hasn't smoked a cigar in about nine years i think he actually quit cold turkey because my father used to smoke about three cigars a day so who knows what habits are going to come back after he uh breaks his sobriety from cigars so i told him listen i will have uh, one glass of my father-in-law's whiskey with you but i'm not going to get drunk i just got a kid here i got a show i'm building it's a business it's like having two children at the same time i've done a great job of not getting any battles with my wife through the whole pregnancy and i'm not about to start that now not with her mother here and the two of them speaking polish because i'll have no idea what they're saying about me i'll wake up from a drunken stupor and all my stuff will be packed and left outside on the front lawn we don't need that happening folks so i'm going to behave myself over thanksgiving but it's going to be great to see my dad haven't seen him since uh, easter my wife and i drove up there when we surprised him and told him that he was going to be a grandfather so uh, that was the last time we saw my father in person so it's going to be great a lot of fun and then in a couple months i think uh, my father-in-law is going to be retired and he might make a trip over here and he has never flown he hates the airplane he really doesn't travel the only place he goes is from where he lives in poland uh, to france and he goes three weeks out of the year because he works in construction so he's retiring in a couple months that might make a trip over here so uh that's the story on the home front all right at least we got the, my mother-in-law who is like some kind of a moon moonshine bootlegger sneaking liquor into the united states now what's going to happen folks probably the atf is going to go after her about uh, after me talking about it on the show so the poor woman i should have kept my mouth shut all right folks well here's the deal I want to start off with this harvardmagazine.com 
article, okay? And I have this up on the screen for the video audience at pain.tv slash gold. And this is a great piece I found uh, while I have been uh, researching eugenics. And this is written in March 2016. And the title is Harvard's Eugenics Era. When academics embrace scientific racism, immigration restrictions, and the suppression of the, uh, of quote, the unfit, end quote. And this is by Adam S. Cohen. And this is a great piece, and we're going to go through all of it because it's going to set the stage for what I'm about to talk about after. And this is really good because it's basically Harvard admitting through Harvard Magazine what the hell they were supporting and what they were doing all the way back in the early 1900s. Uh, all around the progressive era and everything we've been covering the last couple of episodes. It's basically Harvard admitting to this stuff, which is great. I think it's fantastic. Of course, they try to pretend that it's over. And I'm going to show you that it's not over. It never actually ended. And you're going to see one of the big money men who's behind some of the transhumanist projects uh, combined in with what we'd call eugenics, right? So some of the transhumanist projects uh, right here at Harvard. So let's get into this folks it says in august 1912 harvard president emeritus charles william elliott addressed the harvard club of san francisco on a subject close to his heart racial purity it was being threatened he declared by immigration Elliot was not opposed to admitting new Americans, but he saw the mixture of racial groups it could bring about as a grave danger. Quote, each nation should keep its stock pure, end quote, Elliot told his San Francisco audience. Quote, there should be no blending of races, end quote. Now, again, uh, like most things I talk about on this show, not all, obviously, I have my stances against technocracy and against transhumanism, but I am not taking a stand on uh, whether that is right or whether that is wrong, okay? Because I look at a place like Poland or I look at a place like Italy or I look at a place like uh, United Kingdom, right? Any of these places. And, and I say to myself, okay, well, if a country like Poland wanted to keep its uh, identity sort of pure, right? That's their business. They can debate that. Um, this idea of forcing various races, uh, ethnicities to live together and to breed and create multicultural people. I don't, you know, that's a debate we can have on another show. I'm not here to talk about that right now or give my opinion. I am just letting you know the facts, okay? The facts as they are, and all of these articles that I cover here at the Dust and Gold Standard, I have read enough in my life about these topics to know that the information in them is true. So this is very interesting because it is Harvard admitting to what was going on there in the early 1900s. Rather than me taking this from someone who's writing about Harvard, we pull this right out of the Harvard magazine. All right, so again, you've got this guy, Charles William Elliott, and Elliott was not opposed to admitting new Americans, but he saw the mixture of racial groups uh, could bring a grave danger. All right, again, he says, quote, each nation should keep its stock pure, end quote. Elliot told his San Francisco audience, quote, there should be no blending 
of races, end quote. Folks, that's just the beginning. We're just setting the stage. A good old left-leaning liberal at Harvard University talking about this in 1912. Wait until you see what's coming on this wild ride back into the history of eugenics at Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to pay.tv slash gold you are listening to the dustin gold standard all right folks this is a very good piece all right a very very good piece but we got to work our way through this because this is a jam-packed show ladies and gentlemen all right let's continue talking about charles william elliott it says elliott's warning against mixing races which for him included Irish Catholics marrying white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, Jews marrying Gentiles, and blacks marrying whites, was a central tenet of eugenics. The eugenics movement, which had begun in England and was rapidly spreading in the United States, insisted that human progress depended on promoting reproduction by the best people in the best combinations and preventing the unworthy from having children. All right, so you know this because of the last couple of episodes we did, folks. This is basically kind of the ground floor of eugenics promotion of what they deem to be fit to breed with each other and those unfit not be allowed to breed and not mixing of races no mixing of races okay it goes on to say the former harvard president was an outspoken supporter of another major eugenic cause of his time forced sterilization of people declared to be quote feeble minded end quote physically disabled quote criminalistic end quote or otherwise flawed you've got that so this guy charles uh william elliott was the former harvard president and he's this outspoken supporter of eugenics no race mixing right we only let the fit breed the unfit are not allowed to breed and then he believes in the sterilization of the feeble-minded physically disabled criminalistic or otherwise flawed right so that's chemical castration of anyone they declare to be feeble-minded which falls into it's it's a very broad category folks this could be the unemployable the unfit whatever these guys deem to be feeble-minded it is if they were doing this today and you or i spoke about the things we're speaking about now so we didn't fit into the mold we would be considered to be feeble-minded to them if we didn't trust the science, we would be feeble-minded to them. If we don't buy into COVID land, the high school theater production, we are feeble-minded to them. The physically disabled, okay, so somebody who walks with a limp, you know, someone who uh, has a handicap, boom, done, sterilized. Criminalistic, okay, someone who's a criminal, well, we know there's varying degrees of criminals, 
And the more laws we have, the more criminals there are. Listen to Legal Man at the Quash. Uh, if you're committing a crime, supposedly, that's not hurting anyone else, is it really a crime? Well, I don't know. They would sterilize you. Uh, or otherwise flawed, right? So whatever flawed falls into, again, they could devi- define you or I as flawed. goes on to say, in 1907, Indiana had enacted the nation's first eugenic sterilization law. Four years later, in a paper on, quote, the suppression of moral defectives, end quote, Elliott declared that Indiana's law, quote, blazed the trail, which all free states must follow if they would protect themselves from moral degeneracy, end quote. He also lent his considerable prestige to the campaign to build a global eugenics movement. He was a vice president of the first International Eugenics Congress, which met in London in 1912 to hear papers on, quote, racial suicide, end quote, among Northern Europeans and similar topics. Two years later, Elliot helped organize the first national conference on race betterment in Battle Creek, Michigan. All right, so as you see, this former president of Harvard University, he was out and about, folks. He was speaking on this stuff. He was promoting this stuff. And again, some of these policies, uh, if we broke them down, you may or may not agree with. That's not the point. I'm going to show you that when eugenics started, what it's grown into is transhumanism. And that's why any Anything that is behind these so-called progressives will progress to the point of engineering humanity out of existence. It will start with enslaving all of the people under a technocratic system, but the eugenics transhumanism side of this will move towards engineering humanity out of existence because madmen like this gentleman would gladly do it. All right, he's got a vision in his head for what he wants, what he believes is a fit person. All right, but you don't really know what that is. What what if it's anyone who has brown eyes he considers to be not worthy to live? They would be considered to be uh, feeble-minded or physically disabled because they have brown eyes and not blue eyes or green eyes or gray eyes, whatever it may be. Goes on to say, none of these actions created problems for Elliot at Harvard for a simple reason. They were well within the intellectual mainstream at the university. You heard that right, folks. This is Harvard Magazine admitting this. Let me repeat. None of these actions, talking about sterilization, talking about no race mixing, talking about uh, forced breeding, okay, none of these actions created problems for Elliot at Harvard for a simple reason. They were well within the intellectual mainstream at the university. Now, you think that the professors at these universities are crazy today. They were no different back then. I don't know where people uh, got sucked into and believed this fact that like, oh, all these colleges have turned leftists over the last 15 years. Folks, what were the progressives doing over 100 years ago? Talking about sterilizing people they deemed to be unfit. Remember yesterday, we covered that guy Tausig, And Tausik was saying, yeah, I wish we could chloroform all these people, but we're not at that point yet. Instead, we'll lock them in asylums and or sterilize them. Yeah, this guy Tausik was a big deal, folks. I believe he comes up in this article. 
It says, Harvard administrators, faculty members, and alumni were at the forefront of American eugenics. You heard me. Harvard administrators, faculty members, and alumni were at the forefront of American eugenics. Founding eugenics organizations, writing academic and popular eugenics articles, and lobbying government to enact eugenics laws. And for many years, scarcely any significant Harvard voices, if any at all, were raised against it, right? Almost no one ever said anything against it. And this is Harvard admitting this in 2016. Harvard's role in the movement was in many ways not surprising. Eugenics attracted considerable support from progressives, reformers, and educated elites as a way of using science to make a better world. Harvard was hardly the only university that was home to prominent eugenicists. Stanford's first president, David Starr Jordan, and Yale's most acclaimed economist, Irving Fisher, were leaders in the movement. The University of Virginia was the center of scientific racism, with professors like Robert Bennett Bean, author of such works of pseudoscience as the 1906 American Journal of Anatomy article, quote, some racial peculiarities of the Negro brain, end quote. Yeah, folks, this is wild, is it not, that we're finding this here? Harvard just openly talking about this. I haven't looked, folks, but when they did the whole tear down the statue movement under the cancel culture, did they go around and burn down buildings that these professors, these presidents of these universities were uh, named after? I, I mean, should they burn down Harvard because one of the presidents was talking openly about this kind of stuff? I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows this. Seriously, I was talking to a few people who listened to the show and they said, I listen to a lot of stuff and I haven't heard a lot of this before, not in the detail that you're providing. So I'm glad I could be of service. <laughs> it goes on to say, but in part because of its overall prominence and influence on society and in, and in part because it's sheer enthusiasm. Harvard was more central to American eugenics than any other university. Harvard has, with some justification, been called the, quote, brain trust, end quote, of 20th century eugenics. But the role it played is little remembered or remarked upon today, which is why we are talking about it. So you had the brain trust of eugenicists over here at Harvard. You had the brain trust of the New Deal operating over at Columbia University. Lots of brain trust, folks, working to implement transhumanism and technocracy. And where's our brain trust on our side? It's right here at the Dust and Gold Standard. All right, folks, it says, It is understandable that the university is not eager to recall its part in that tragically misguided intellectual movement, but it is a chapter too important to be forgotten. And so I want to give a round of applause, okay, to Adam S. Cohen and whoever his editor was that allowed this to be printed again that says it is understandable that the university is not eager to recall its part in that tragically misguided intellectual movement but it is a chapter too important to be forgotten but i will say right here folks this tragically misguided intellectual movement no 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 you don't get to get away with that because 
it never ended. It never, ever ended. You'll see what they're doing there at Harvard right now. So for anyone who believes that this was just some stain on history over at Harvard University or some stain on America, no, folks, this was commonplace, this was mainstream, and it never actually ended. It goes on to say eugenics emerged in England in the late 1800s when Francis Galton, a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, we looked at this the other day, began studying the families of some of history's greatest thinkers and concluded that genius was hereditary. Galton invented a new word, combining the Greek for, quote, good, end quote, and, quote, genes, end quote. Now, as you know, we covered that as well, so... Eugenics means good genes and launched a movement calling for society to take affirmative steps to promote, quote, the more suitable races or strains of blood, end quote, echoing his famous half cousins work on evolution. Galton declared that, quote, what nature does blindly, slowly and ruthlessly man may do providently, quickly and kindly, end quote. Now, we have picked up a lot of great quotes over the last several episodes from the technocrats to the eugenicists, from these leading figures in these two movements that were rising at the same time. Now, I told you, these people are sick. They're demented. They're power hungry. They want control. They want to shape the world in their own vision. And they do not want to allow God, the creator, mother nature, natural life, whatever it may be, to take its course. They believe that they should play God. This is the same thing as Dennis Bushnell, chief scientist at NASA in 2018 in front of the FIRE organization, The Future in Review, saying that we have reached the point of human evolution of humans. This is when humans take control of their evolution. And who is doing that? You or me or anyone else? No. It is the scientists, the engineers, the technologist uh, back here under eugenics it was the economist that believe that they should have the right to engineer the future of the human they should have the right to control the society they should have the right to socially engineer the culture they should have the right to genetically modify people and force children to breed with each other they should have the right to control the outcome because they are sick and tired of allowing god or the creator to do such things See, it says right here, echoing his famous half-cousin's work. Okay, so he's talking about Charles Darwin on evolution. Galton declared that, quote, what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. Do you understand that? So these guys most of which were devout atheists, and we'll eventually get into that on another show. Now, again, I'm not here to push Christianity or any other religion, but I do believe in a God. I do believe in a creator. I do believe in Mother Nature. I do believe in natural life. Okay, I do believe there's magic out there, and it's all around us. No, I do not believe the world was created by aliens. All right, although that's funny to think about, that we are just in some alien kid's science project sitting in a Petri dish, but no, I do not believe that. But see, when they admit 
that they're fighting against nature, they're admitting that they're acknowledging there's something beyond their so-called science, right? Because he's saying what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. So that's the idea of them wanting to play God. So if God is going to slowly weed out the dregs of society, we can do it quickly we can do it kindly we'll just bring you out behind the tool shed and throw a chloroform rag over your mouth until you choke to death rather than watch you slowly fade away the question is if god wanted those people weeded out of society why were they walking around alive and well Okay, if these people were able to get jobs and get employment and be somewhat productive citizens in this capitalistic society that these guys had developed, why would they have to rig the system to force these people into unemployment just so that they could label them unemployable, unfit, and then deem them to be locked up in an asylum, a concentration camp, be forced into sterilization or killed? All right, see, this is the sicko human. These are evil people, folks. Something is wrong with them. They are not happy with themselves, and therefore, they have to make everyone else suffer in their misery. Misery loves company, folks. And I am happy, and I love company as well. That's why I invite you back right here on pain.tv slash gold. When we get back from the break, my name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's continue here. I mean, can you imagine, though, what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly? Man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. I guess we didn't follow those rules when we went into Iraq for this endless endless war folks i mean that's what we should run into washington dc and silicon valley with a sign declaring that as we attack them what nature does blindly slowly and ruthlessly we may do providently quickly and kindly yes they will kindly place a chloroform soaked old t-shirt over your face and hold it there until your body starts to quiver and foam comes out of your mouth they'll do it quickly folks Kind of like abortion. Kind of like infanticide. Yeah, we'll take care of that problem. It goes on to say, eugenics soon made its way across the Atlantic. Reinforced by the discoveries of Gregor Mendel and the new science of genetics. And, you know, let me point that out, folks. Because years ago, years ago, I used to joke around. And I would say... um, Oh, yeah, well, you'll be able to kill your child up till the age of 18. We'll just call it post-birth abortion. And then all of a sudden, a few years ago, the situation came up in Virginia where they basically legalized infanticide. Uh, you could kill the baby up until the minute it's born. 
And I believe it's on the books that if the baby is born in the middle of a botched abortion, you could murder it right there on the hospital table. Well, think about this one. What is the difference between that and these guys who want to sterilize folks, meaning they're going to kill the baby before it's actually even born by ending people's bloodlines by force? Well, you say that's pretty sick stuff, but look at what just happened in Virginia in the last couple of years. So that's happening today. If you heard about that in a history book, if I read it to you as a history lesson, you go, wow, these people were monsters back in the 1900s. Well, they're doing it right now. They're doing it right now. All right, let's continue. In the United States, it found some of its earliest support among the same group that Harvard had, the wealthy old families of Baston, Baston, Massachusetts, right? It says the Boston Brahmins were strong believers in the power of their own bloodlines. And it was an easy leap for many of them to believe that society should work to make the nation's gene pool as exalted as their own. Now, we heard that Jeffrey Epstein was involved with some of this stuff, right? Thought his bloodline was so special. Elon Musk involved with some of this stuff, right? So again, it never ended, folks. It just changed names. It changed names. It rebranded. It's got new people. But it's all still there. It's all alive and well. It goes on to say, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., AB 1829, MD 36, LLD 80. All right, that's all his official titles, folks. Dean of Harvard Medical School. So Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. was Dean of Harvard Medical School, acclaimed writer, and father of the future Supreme Court Justice, was one of the first American intellectuals to espouse genetics. Holmes, whose ancestors had been at Harvard since John Oliver entered with the class of 1680, had been writing about human breeding even before Galton. He coined the phrase, quote, Boston Brahmin, end quote, in 1861 book in which he described his social class as a physical and mental elite, identifiable by its noble physiognomy and aptitude for learning, which he insisted were congenital and hereditary. Holmes believed eugenic principles could be used to address the nation's social problems. In an 1875 article in the Atlantic Monthly, he gave Galton an early embrace and argued that his ideas could help to explain the roots of criminal behavior. Quote, if genius and talent are inherited, as Mr. Galton has so conclusively shown, end quote, Holmes wrote, Quote, why should not deep-rooted moral defects show themselves in the descendants of moral monsters? Question. It was a question he asked, folks. As eugenics grew in popularity, it took hold at the highest levels of Harvard. A. Lawrence Lowell who served as president from 1909 to 1933, was an active supporter. Lowell, who worked to impose a quota on Jewish students and to keep black students from living in the yard, was particularly concerned about immigration. And he joined the eugenicists in calling for sharp limits. Quote, the need for homogeneity in a democracy, end quote, he insisted, justified laws, quote, resisting the influx of great numbers of a greatly different race, end quote. 
Lowell also supported eugenics research. When the Eugenics Record Office, the nation's leading eugenics research and propaganda organization, asked for access to Harvard records to study the physical and intellectual attributes of alumni fathers and sons, he readily agreed. Lowell had a strong personal interest in eugenics research. His secretary noted in response to the request, You see, so you had all these heads of Harvard. How can they try to tell you this was just some misguided uh, blemish here? It was just a blemish on this misguided ideology. Folks, the top guys at Harvard were part of this. Woodrow Wilson, our president, Theodore Roosevelt, our president, were involved with eugenics. This stuff was mainstream. Now, again, you may be for or against this stuff, whatever. I'm just showing you it's real. It's there. It's cemented in our history. If you don't know about this, and if you don't know how big this movement was, then I think this is very important to you because it will help start to make you realize that the America you think you live in or the America you thought you live in is not that America anymore. I mean, it's it, we have this vision of America that we were sold, and then we're told with what's going on today that America was taken away from us. But what America is it? I, I, that's why I keep presenting to you. Are we going back to 1960, 1940, 1920, 1800? Because all these horrible things have happened throughout American history. So if you get in your time machine with Doc Brown and we go back to the future, folks, where, where are we actually going? Where are we starting at? We would have to go at least pre-Civil War. And probably have to go pre-Constitution back to the Articles of Confederation. But then, are we bringing back slavery? See, there's all these things that we say are bad, and we righted certain wrongs. But then, look at all the wrongs we created, like eugenics and technocracy and everything else. See, this country was never perfect. It was never perfect at all. We could sit here and say, well, it's better than any other form of government. I don't know that. I didn't live under any other form of government. I know that my wife grew up in communist Poland under Soviet control. It was supposedly pretty bad. The food was rationed. Uh, My mother-in-law and father-in-law, when they were younger, they would get uh, basically food vouchers. It's equivalent to food stamps here. And you would go to the store and you'd get your food. At the same time, the Soviets were handing out large plots of land. My mother-in-law threw her uh, late father and then her, what, four other sisters, they inherited tens of acres of land apiece from the land that her father acquired under communist Poland. I'm not saying it was better or worse. I'm just saying we haven't lived under these different forms of government. So to say that we are the best form of government that ever existed, I think that's just a fairy tale. See, while we lived under this so-called constitutional republic, all this other stuff was going on, and this constitutional republic, this uh, mom and apple pie America, basically never existed. See, even if you roll back to, I think, the vision that most people had when Trump would say, make America great again, make America great and stuff and things 
and everything again. It's going to be unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. It's going to be so great. Well, I think when you roll back to 1950, you think of mom and apple pie, you think of more morals, you think of more ethics, but at the same time, the technocracy already came in under the New Deal, and even before that, the Federal Reserve was already there. So the direction we were moving in was already set in stone. This point that we're at here today was the only logical conclusion uh, as far as if you look at all these events throughout history, where it was going to eventually push us to. All right, so we are in it. We're living in it. So to say we're going to restore America is just really sad. I think the only way that you can restore at least this vision of America you have in your head is we form this breakaway civilization, this breakaway community, a breakaway development. You know, we'll have to deal with, I said, the federal government, the state government, but you can build a community in which a bunch of us live and we live to the fullest extent of freedom as possible. Uh, except for our dealings with the government. So it would be a one foot in the matrix, one foot out of the matrix system. All right, it goes on to say the Harvard faculty contains some of nation's most influential eugenics thinkers in an array of academic disciplines. Frank W. Tossig. Okay, so this is the gentleman that we covered yesterday who talked about throwing a chloroform rag over somebody's face. He said, we're just not there yet. We're not there yet. In the meantime, let's lock them in cages and we'll chemically castrate them. So it says Frank W. Tossig, whose 1911 Principles of Economics was one of the most widely adopted economics textbooks of its time, called for sterilizing unworthy individuals with a particular focus on the lower classes. Quote, the human race could be immensely improved in quality and its capacity for happy living immensely increased if those of poor physical and mental endowment were prevented from multiplying, end quote, Tausig wrote. Quote, certain types of criminals and paupers breed only their kind, and society has a right and a duty to protect its members from the repeated burden of maintaining and guarding such parasites, end quote. Okay, so this guy right here, Harvard faculty, right, one of the most influential thinkers in the eugenic ideology. In this 1911 book, Principles of Economics, okay, it's one of the most widely adopted economic textbooks. So this is economist. Kids going to school for economy classes, economy courses, to get a degree in economics are reading this, right? I have to reread it because you would think it's a quote from Adolf Hitler, Right? Or you would think it's a quote from Yuval Noah Harari, which there's very little difference. What's the difference between Hitler and Yuval Noah Harari? I don't know, about a one-inch wide mustache? That's pretty much it, folks. It goes on to say, quote, The human race could be immensely improved in quality and its capacity for happy living immensely increased if those of poor physical and mental endowment were prevented from multiplying. Certain types of criminals and paupers breed only their kind, and society has a right and a duty to protect its members from the repeated burden of maintaining and guarding such parasites. You know, I was having a conversation conversation with Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays uh, this afternoon about this. And she said to me, 
I believe that all humans are born good, and they only learn evil from those that are raising them and from the world that is around them. And each child grows up in a completely different world, folks, based on where they're growing up at the very moment they're growing up. And a lot of these people end up with uh, childhood trauma that they never overcome, and that's what makes them evil. So to say that these people only breed evil, I'm telling you, this opens the doors to exactly what is going on today, where the transhumanists believe that we have to merge with artificial intelligence. They want to crossbreed us with the machine because we are imperfect. And when we get back in one of the segments tonight, we're going to talk about this paper I found that explains it so well that I decided to include it in this show. Because I've talked to you before about the transhumanists and these technocrats. They could never ever recreate the soul they think they can recreate the power of the brain they think they can upload their consciousness to the cloud they think they can create these cyborg android uh, robots and that they can grow people in synthetic rooms but they cannot duplicate the soul and that is what makes them upset that is why Yuval Noah Harari says you have no spirit you have no soul the days of free will are over think about what that means folks the days of free will are over is it that we have no soul and that we have no spirit or is it that they're going to take our soul and take our spirit and that is why the days of free will are over because we will have no free will with no soul because we will merely be a robot in their internet of things folks i'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to pain.tv slash gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, let's continue with this Harvard Magazine piece. See all these nuggets you find when you start researching and studying history, folks? I mean, these mainstream guys, presidents, and these leading professors at Harvard talking about this. Oh, the esteemed Harvard, the wonderful Harvard. My son went to Harvard. Oh, really? What did he learn there? It goes on to say, Harvard's geneticists gave important support to Galton's fledgling would-be science. Botanist Edward M. East, who taught at Harvard's Boosie Institution, propounded a particularly racial version of eugenics. In his 1919 book, Inbreeding and Outbreeding, Their Genetic and Sociological Significance, East warned that race mixing would diminish the white race, writing, quote, races have arisen which are as distinct in mental capacity as in physical traits, end quote. The simple fact, he said, was that, quote, the Negro is inferior to the white, end quote. So here you have Edward M. East, right, who taught at Harvard's Boosie Institution saying the Negro is inferior to the white. And so 
this is the mentality of these folks in and around Harvard, right? In and around Harvard. I wonder if they bring this up at their uh, graduation ceremony every year or if this is in the recruitment material. If you're going to send your kid off to Harvard, does it say on the front, Harvard, the Negro is inferior to the white, Edward M. East. No, I don't think so. Where was the BLM movement uh, surrounding this stuff, folks? This hidden history. That should be the, the story. Should be, this is the segment we called The Hidden History. The Truth About Harvard. You know, I mean, this is uh, unbelievable, folks. I don't know if you've ever heard this stuff on mainstream news. Has uh, Tucker Carlson or did Bill O'Reilly ever talk about this? I am not sure, folks. I am not sure. It goes on to say... East also sounded a biological alarm about the Jews, Italians, Asians, and other foreigners who were arriving in large numbers. Quote, the early settlers came from stock, which had made notable contributions to civilization, end quote, he asserted. Whereas the new immigrants were coming, quote, in increasing numbers from peoples who have impressed modern civilization, but lightly, end quote. All right, so basically saying that the original settlers had done great things. The new immigrants have not wowed anybody. That's what he's saying. There was a distinct possibility, he warned, that a, quote, considerable part of these people are genetically undesirable, end quote. In his 1923 book, Mankind at the Crossroads, East Please became more emphatic, the nation, he said, was being overrun by the feeble-minded who were reproducing more rapidly than the general population, quote, and we expect to restore the balance by expecting the latter to compete with them in the size of their families. East wrote, quote, no, eugenics is sorely needed. Social progress without it is unthinkable, end quote. So again, they're always talking about Social project progress, social engineering, social control, you know, a system of social order. You know, this is the type of stuff they talk about here. So, again, these guys are trying to play God. You know, we're going to go do deeper research into this where they could have just called for, you know, ending mass immigration. Let's call it quits to it. But instead, they move towards this idea of sterilization, these ideas uh, really of uh, forced breeding and really genocide. You know, some of them actually talk about killing people like Towsing, who said that we should chloroform them right i mean this is serious stuff folks these were leading scholars talking about this openly and we're going to figure out who was behind uh, mass open borders mass immigration because it is my opinion you're going to see that it is a problem reaction solution scenario so they create the problem by bringing all these people in and then they're going to provoke a reaction you know save us save us and then they're going to offer a solution hey let us kill people that we deem to be undesirable of course it doesn't end with the so-called immigrants because if you have a club foot and you can't work down at the dock guess what buddy you're being chemically castrated guess what you're going to be thrown in a wood chipper
All right, but now we move into the modern age, and don't worry because they are going to make sure that people aren't born like that by cutting in good strands of DNA and replacing the bad strands of DNA, or some of the DNA injection shots I looked at where they claim they can inject you now and cure your bad DNA. Want us to get rid of your club foot? Let us inject you with a DNA-modifying shot. Oh, yeah, sure. No thanks, fellas. I read your uh, papers from back in 1900s. I think I'll pass. All right, it goes on to say, East Busey Institution colleague William Ernest Castle taught a course on, quote, genetics and eugenics, end quote, one of a number of eugenics courses across the university. See, they were teaching this stuff to children. So that generation of kids was tainted with this. Where do you think they went on to? Who do you think their kids are? Huh, gee, I wonder. I wonder how many people they indoctrinated with this school of thought. All the fine so-called liberals today, folks, grew out of this movement. All the wealthy elite families. Goes on to say he also published a leading textbook by the same name that shaped the views of a generation of students nationwide. There you go. There, I knew that was coming, folks. You see that? You have this guy, William Ernest Castle, taught a course on, quote, genetics and eugenics, end quote, one of a number of eugenics courses across the university. And this guy, William Castle, also published a leading textbook by the same name that shaped the views of a generation of students nationwide. And I was talking to Maria Albanese about this because I told her, It's like the young folks that you see working in the hospital system. If those people were educated within the current system of medicine, the Rockefeller Industrial Medical Complex, right, then that's all they know. If you have a 35-year-old teacher who went to college to be a teacher and they were taught how to teach using Common Core, that is all they know. If you have a lawyer taught in the current system at a college that teaches law based on the current system, that is all they know. Unless you're someone like Legal Man of the podcast The Quash, you're not going to question your own education. You go spend two, three, four hundred thousand dollars to go to law school, and then you get out, and you're going to start spending hundreds of hours of research every month to disprove everything that you just learned? No, the majority of people are not going to do that. So now you have a generation of students that were brought up on eugenics that then go out into the real world, many of which become teachers, and then what do you think they're teaching their students? What do you think they're practicing if they're a scientist or an engineer? They're practicing eugenics. And then you ask yourself how this trickled into the 1950s and 60s through people like Sidney Gottlieb, the chief uh, chemist at the CIA who was running the MK Ultra programs. How did that trickle all the way into today with uh, Ray Kurzweil and Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the rest of these folks? Well, we created a whole generation of students out there that are considered to be super smart, the elite, because they went to Harvard, now with this eugenics ingrained into their DNA goes on to say genetics and eugenics that's the book not only identified its author as quote professor of zoology in harvard university end quote but was published by harvard university press and bore the veritas seal on its 
title page, lending the appearance of an imprimatur to his strongly stated views. In Genetics and Eugenics, that's the book, Castle explained that race mixing, whether in animals or humans, produced inferior offspring. He believed there were superior and inferior races, and that, quote, racial crossing, end quote, benefited neither. Quote, from the viewpoint of a superior race, there is nothing to be gained by crossing with an inferior race, end quote, he wrote. Quote, from the viewpoint of the inferior race, also the cross is undesirable if the two races live side by side, because each race will despise individuals of mixed race, and this will lead to endless friction, end quote. So what he's saying is if you have a super uh, high-ranking breed, let's say like a Harvard graduate goes and breeds with a community college girl, right, it's not fair to either of them because the offspring spring of the Harvard graduate is going to be diluted, and therefore that kid should be thrown to the wolves. Uh, but for the girl who went to the community college, it's not fair to her, because her offspring will be made fun of and disowned by the community college crowd and the Harvard crowd. That's what he's saying there, folks. Goes on to say, Castle also propounded the eugenicist argument that crime, prostitution, and quote, pauperism, end quote, were largely due to quote, feeble mindedness, end quote, which he said was inherited. He argued the unfortunate individuals so afflicted be sterilized, or in the case of women, quote, segregated, end quote, in institutions during their reproductive years to prevent them from having children. Well, he doesn't talk about how the majority of those prostitutes back then were thrown into a life of prostitution slavery by the very people that he's hanging out with at Harvard University. But we won't mention that, folks, because we're not allowed to talk about that. Oh, yeah. Give me a break. And these people that were pushed into crime to steal were because of the economic policies of these same economists from the same era. See, they're cleaning up their own messes goes on to say, like his colleague East, Castle was deeply concerned about the biological impact of immigration. In some parts of the country, he said the, quote, good human stock, quote, was dying out and being replaced by, quote, a European peasant population, end quote. Would, quote, this new population be a fit substitute for the old Anglo-Saxon stock, end quote. Castle's answer, quote, time alone will tell, end quote. One of Harvard's most prominent psychology professors was a eugenicist who pioneered the use of questionable intelligence testing. Robert M. Yerkes, AB 1898, PhD 02, published an introductory psychology textbook in 19. 19- that included a chapter on, quote, eugenics and mental life, end quote. Entity explained that, quote, the cure for race deterioration is the selection of the fit as parents, end quote. Yerkes, who taught courses with such titles as, quote, educational psychology, heredity and eugenics, end quote, and, quote, mental development in the race, end quote, developed a now infamous intelligence test that was administered to 1.75 million U.S. Army enlistees in 1917. The test purported to find that more than 47% of the white test takers and even more of the black ones were feeble-minded. See, 
that? So if you're white, if you're Caucasian, and you're cheering on this, going, yeah, this was not a bad idea, guess what? There's a 47% chance that you would have been deemed feeble-minded by these quacks, by these psychos, by these power-hungry madmen. And you would have been chemically castrated, locked in a cage, or had a chloroform rag thrown over your white face. See, no one was going to be protected by these folks except the elites that hung out at the country clubs with these madmen. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. Think about that over the break. My name is Dustin Gold, and this is the Dustin Gold Standard. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Payne.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks. All right, let's continue with this, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. It says, some of Yerk's questions were straightforward language and math problems, but others were more like tests of familiarity with the dominant culture. One question asked, quote, Christy Matheson is famous as a, one, writer, two, artist, three, baseball player, four, comedian. I don't know, folks. What would you say? Seriously, this was a test given to 1.75 million U.S. Army enlistees in 1917, and that was one of the questions. And if you got a question like that wrong, you are (laughs) feeble-minded. Outrageous. It says the journalist Walter Lippmann, and, and think about that for a minute, the U.S. Army allowed this test to be given. They obviously adopted it from this guy. Robert M. Yerkes. Okay, so that goes to show you what the precious military that we want to believe was so pure before, I don't know, Joe Biden made it woke, uh, the type of things that they were adopting. And we showed you through today. They're in bed with the transhumanists, the technocrats, and everything else, folks. So, again, I don't know if I'd count on those people to be the ones to protect you. It goes on to say the journalist Walter Lippmann, AB 1910, Lit D. 44 said the results were not merely inaccurate but quote nonsense end quote with quote no more scientific foundation than a hundred other fads vitamins uh, or correspondence courses uh, in willpower end quote the 47 percent feeble-minded claim was an absurd result unless as harvard's late professor of geology stephen j gould put it The United States was, quote, a nation of morons, end quote. But the Yerkes findings were widely accepted and helped fuel the drives to sterilize, quote, unfit, quote, Americans and keep out, quote, unworthy, end quote, immigrants, right? So see, Americans were getting put on the chopping block. And when I say the chopping block, folks, that is the less painful method to the chemical castration all right gentlemen you're going to the chopping block 
goes on to say another eugenicist in a key position was William McDougall, who helped the psychology professorship William James had formerly held. His 1920 book, The Group Mind, explained that the, quote, Negro, end quote, race had, quote, never produced any individuals of really high mental and moral endowments, end quote, and was apparently, quote, incapable, end quote, of doing so. His next book, Is America Safe for Democracy, written in 1921, argued that civilizations declined because of the, quote, inadequacy of the qualities of the people who are the bearers of it end quote and advocated eugenic sterilization again these are leading harvard scholars some of which were presidents of harvard heads of departments all right ask that of your harvard buddies ask this of your elitist friends Harvard's embrace of eugenics extended to the athletic department. Dudley Allen Sargent, who arrived in 1879 to direct Hemingway Gymnasium, infused physical education at the college with eugenic principles, including his conviction that certain kinds of exercise were particularly important for female students because they built strong pelvic muscles, which over time could advantage the gene pool. In quote, giving birth to a child no amount of mental and moral education will ever take the place of a large, well-developed pelvis with plenty of muscular and organic power behind it, end quote, Sargent stated. Oh, so when my wife was doing those exercises, I guess she was taking part in eugenics. I should have warned her, folks. It says the presence of large female pelvises, he insisted, would determine whether, quote, large brainy children shall be born at all, end quote. Well, good thing my wife did those, and it appears it worked. Because I'll tell you this, folks. Last night, oh, we go to bed earlier now. I think it was 8 or 9 o'clock we went to bed, so we woke up at 11 because uh, Big Will, he wanted to be fed. I'm telling you, this kid doesn't stop. It's like he he drives up to the milk machine, and uh, he keeps going. Anyway, so he was like a little bit whiny, and we decided what the heck. Sometimes we set up his little pillow in between us on the big California King bed, and we let him sleep between us, and it's kind of cool. It's still the first week. You know, he was born, uh, what, eight days ago? So he was hanging out there, and I'm not kidding you, folks. One weekend, this guy rolled himself over, and he kind of crawled on his elbows, and he was leaning his head against my shoulder. I couldn't believe it. So anyway, he's probably got a big brain, and that's because my wife did her pelvic floor exercises uh, leading up to his birth. So thank God for eugenics in that department, ladies and gentlemen. It goes on to say, Sargent, who presided over Hemingway for 40 years, used his position as a bully pulpit. In 1914, he addressed the nation's largest eugenic gathering, the Race Betterment Conference in Michigan, at which one of the main speakers called for eugenic sterilization of the, quote, worthless one-tenth, end quote, of the nation. Yeah, this guy called for the sterilization of the worthless 
one-tenth, all right? So stand in a line of people at the grocery store, 10 people there. One of you is going to be chemically castrated. That's what this guy promoted. So it says, Sargent told the conference that based on his, quote, long experience and careful observation, end quote, of Harvard and Radcliffe students, quote, physical education is one of the most important factors in the betterment of the race, end quote. Apparently, this guy did not have any black athletes playing sports at Harvard there at the time because he would have wanted to exterminate and or sterilize all white people if he watched the black athletes uh, play any sport, folks. And if he attended a, a college dance, you know, a college prom, oh, the white people would have been lined up behind the dumpster and shot uh, if it was going to be a dance-off competition. All right, folks, it goes on to say if Harvard's embrace of eugenics had somehow remained within university confines as merely an intellectual school of thought, the impact might have been contained. But members of the community took to their ideas about genetic superiority and biological engineering to Congress, to the courts, and to the public at large with considerable effect. Folks, I think we need to repeat this. Because earlier I told you, if you are someone who goes to college to learn how to teach fifth graders, and all you're taught is how to train them and how to prep them for common core tests or state tests or federal tests, that is all you know. All right. If you are not allowed to go into the classroom and teach you anything other than that, that's all you know. That's what you do. Same goes for doctors, same goes for lawyers, same goes for computer programmers. You're doing what you're taught. So you have a whole generation of kids. Actually, I would say more than that because this stuff spanned from the late 1800s to really going into the early 1930s. You had, what, 30, 40 years of students who learned this and then took this out into the real world with them. Again, it says if Harvard's embrace of eugenics had somehow remained within university confines as merely an intellectual school of thought, the impact might have been contained. But members of the community took their ideas about genetic superiority and biological engineering to Congress, to the courts, and to the public at large with considerable effect. Remember, these Harvard grads end up being elevated into positions of power, positions of influence, positions that allow them to build a lot of wealth, folks. That's why they go to Harvard. It was on to say, in 1894, a group of alumni met in Boston to found an organization that took a eugenic approach to what they considered the greatest threat to the nation, immigration. Prescott Farnsworth Hall, Charles Warren, and Robert DeCourcy Ward were young scions of old New England families, all from the class of 1889. They called their organization the Immigration Restriction League, but genetic thinking was so central to their mission that Hall proposed calling it the Eugenic Immigration League. Joseph Lee, and he's got this long string of things after his name, so I'm not going to read them, scion of a wealthy Boston banking family and twice elected a Harvard overseer, was a major funder. And 
Okay, I'll go back to that. And William DeWitt Hyde, uh, AB seven, uh, 1879, S- STD, 86. Oh, he had STDs? No. Another future overseer and the president of Boyden College served as a vice president. The membership roles quickly filled with hundreds of people united in xenophobia, many of them Boston Brahmins and Harvard graduates. Let's go back to that part we missed there, folks. That was... The banking guy, who was that? Joseph Lee, scion of a wealthy Boston banking family and twice elected a Harvard overseer, was a major funder. All right, so you're going to see throughout a lot of the research we're doing that we're always finding these bankers, okay, behind the scenes. Obviously, they need to be because the big money comes from the bankers. Movements like technocracy and eugenics and transhumanism don't happen without the bankers. All right, everything that Wide Awake Jim is covering uh, in episodes 80, 88, and the future episodes is going to lead up to show you the bankers that are behind the scenes. They're the ones pushing central bank digital currency, UBI, carbon credits, and everything else. Again, we're supposed to believe they're just vulture capitalists, out-of-control capitalists. They are nothing more than people that are interested in ultimate power and control. So they don't care if the money that they control is monopoly money, if it is useless fiat currency, if it is seashells, if it is pine cones, if it is acorns, if it is CBDC, if it is energy certificates, if it is carbon credits, if it is the U.S. dollar, if it is the Polish Zwarte, they don't care uh, as long as they have control and they have power. It goes on to say their goal was to keep out groups they regarded as biologically undesirable. Immigration was a race question, pure and simple. Ward said, quote, it is fundamentally a question as to what races shall dominate in the country, end quote. League members made no secret of whom they meant, Jews, Italians, Asians, and anyone else who did not share their northern European lineage. Drawing on Harvard influence to pursue its goals, recruiting alumni to establish branches in other parts of the country, and boasting President Lowell himself as its vice president, the Immigration Restriction League was remarkably effective in its work. Its first major proposal was a literacy test, not only to reduce the total number of immigrants, but also to lower the percentage from Southern and Eastern Europe where literacy rates were lower. In 1896, the League persuaded Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts to introduce a literacy bill. Getting it passed and signed into law took time, but beginning in 1917, immigrants were legally required to prove their literacy to be admitted to the country. Now, again, this is why I was saying some of this stuff you may agree with, some of this stuff you may not agree with. That's why I said I'm not really going to take a personal stand on this. Uh, in everything bad, you can also find something good. I am a strong believer in having secure borders. Uh, that's what makes you a sovereign country. So I am not necessarily opposed to a literacy test for people coming into the country. But then again, I'm looking at it based on today in 2022. I don't know what the situation was in 1917. I also didn't look up the literacy rate of U.S. citizens at the time. So I'd have to look at that. I'm just presenting the facts, folks. But this is what happened.
happens in this eugenics movement. They use these issues like immigration, okay, stuff that they could fix on its own, but they use those to tie them into the ability for them to deem who's fit and unfit, who's employable and unemployable, and then be able to force chemical castration, to be able to introduce forced breeding for the fit, and to be able to introduce elements of... Um, of actual genocide, of actually killing people. So they sort of mix all these things in that then allows them to get certain people on board. So you go, yeah, I'm on board with making sure people that can't read come into the United States. Okay, great. Well, guess what? You also have to be on board with sterilizing uh, Americans that we think are stupid. See, this is how they get everybody on board. They get buy-in from various groups of people. It's no different than what these guys do today, folks. They build buy in buy-in and adoption of these policies all right folks we'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv ladies and gentlemen i am dustin gold welcome back to the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold all right folks let's continue here because there's quite a bit more in this i think you're learning a lot ladies and gentlemen harvard was uh I wouldn't say ground zero because it was going on in a lot of places, but it was definitely one element of ground zero in the current transhumanist movement. You're going to see that when we wrap up this article. It goes on to say the league scored a far bigger victory with the passage of Immigration Act of 1924. After hearing extensive expert testimony about the biological threat posed by immigrants, Congress imposed harsh national quotas designed to keep Jews, Italians, and Asians out. As the percentage of immigrants from Northern Europe increased significantly, Jewish immigration fell from 190,000 in 1920 to 7,000 in 1926. Italian immigration fell nearly as sharply, and immigration from Asia was almost completely cut off until 19. 52. While one group of alumni focused on inserting eugenics into immigration, another prominent alumnus was taking the lead of the broader movement, Charles Benedict Davenport. A.B. 1889, Ph.D. 92, taught zoology at Harvard before founding the Eugenics Record Office in Cold Spring Harbor, New York in 1910, funded in large part by Mrs. E.H. Harriman, widow of the railroad magnet, the ERO, became a powerful force in promoting eugenics. It was the main gathering place for academics studying eugenics and the driving force in promoting eugenic sterilization laws nationwide. Oh, fuck. See, all the elites were on board with this, and you don't think for two seconds that this is about the fact that they love you or they want to save this country for you or they want to keep uh, you alive and protect you. No, folks, you would be sent for sterilization. All of us would be deemed to be feeble-minded, folks, unfit to live. 
unfit to produce. It says Davenport wrote prolifically. Heredity in relation to eugenics, published in 1911, quickly became the standard text for the eugenics courses cropping up at colleges and universities nationwide. See that? So heredity in relation to eugenics, published in 1911, quickly became the standard text for the eugenics courses cropping up at colleges and universities nationwide, and was cited by more than one-third of high school biology textbooks of the era. You see this? This mentality was embedded into society. This is social engineering at the highest order. Goes on to say, Davenport explained that qualities like criminality and laziness were genetically determined. Quote, when both parents are shiftless in some degree, end quote, he wrote, only about 15% of their children would be, quote, industrious, end quote. Well, what about all the sons and the daughters of the elite class who write this, who turn out to be no good drug addict bums? Huh? What's your excuse there, folks? What's your excuse there, you elitist pigs? I'm serious, folks. This is how they talk about us. Because trust me, trust me, we fit into these categories that they are talking about. It goes on to say, but perhaps no Harvard eugenicist had more impact on the public consciousness than Lothrop Stoddard, AB 1905, PhD 14. His bluntly titled 1920 bestseller, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, had 14 printings in its first three years, drew lavish praise from President Warren G. Harding, and made a mildly disguised appearance in The Great Gatsby when Daisy Buchanan's husband Tom exclaimed that, quote, civilization's going to pieces, end quote, something he learned by reading, quote, The Rise of the Colored Empires, end quote, by this man, Goddard. When eugenics reached a high water mark in 1927, and folks, there you go, though, teaching moment, there was placing that book into uh, the Great Gatsby. This is how they spread propaganda back then as well. No different than today. So when we say, let's go back to whatever America, this stuff was going on in any given time. It was always going on. I'm not sitting here trashing America. I'm just trying to make people realize that the dream that you have is just a dream. The solution is for us to get together and just check out, get out of here, go form another society and just stay clear of this stuff because it's already embedded in the culture. You can't undo it. We can't undo it, but we can wake up enough people in and around us to then go form a breakaway community. I'm going to start calling it a breakaway community instead of a breakaway civilization because we're not going to start another civilization. We have to start with a community. You know, 100 families, we get together, we buy um, a 1,000 acres somewhere, we have 10 acres apiece, um, you know, maybe we have five acres apiece that we designate 500 acres to do a sustainable farm. And then basically have our tech center where we go to work. If we have to tap in, work remotely. I don't know. We can figure it out, folks. Breakaway community. All right. It goes on to say, when eugenics reached a high water mark in 1927, 
a pillar of the Harvard community, once again played a critical role. In that year, the Supreme Court decided Buck v. Bell, a constitutional challenge to Virginia's eugenic sterilization law. The case was brought on behalf of Carrie Buck, a young woman who had been designated, quote, feeble-minded, end quote, by the state and selected for eugenic sterilization. That's right here in the United States, folks. But was, in fact, not feeble-minded at all. Growing up in poverty in Charlottesville, she had been taken in by a foster family and then raped by one of its relatives. See, the same sick stuff was going on back then. She was declared feeble-minded because she was pregnant out of wedlock, and she was chosen for sterilization because she was deemed to be feeble-minded. See that? No fault of her own. No fault of her own, and then they're going to chemically castrate her. By an 8-to-1 vote, the justices upheld the Virginia law and Buck's sterilization and cleared the way for sterilizations to continue in about half the country where there were similar laws. Think about it, folks. Go back to 1927. 8-to-1, the Supreme Court justices upheld Virginia's forced sterilization law and enforced This woman bucked to be sterilized. This woman who was taken in by foster parents, raped and got pregnant. Think about that. And we talk about the Supreme Court being corrupt now. We don't even know our own history. We don't even know our own history. Goes on to say the majority opinion was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., Again, a long string after his name. A former Harvard Law School professor and overseer. Holmes, who shared his father's deep faith in bloodlines, did not merely give Virginia a green light. He urged the nation to get serious about eugenics and prevent large numbers of, quote, unfit, and quote, Americans from reproducing. It was necessary to sterilize people who, quote, sapped the strength of the state, end quote, Holmes insisted, to, quote, prevent our being swamped with incompetence, end quote. His opinion included one of the most brutal uh, aphorisms in American law, saying a buck her mother, and her perfectly normal infant daughter, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. You hear this? Do you hear this? Seriously. Are you absorbing this? This is making me choke up, folks. I'm not going to play Glenn Beck over here and start crying on camera. I have my sunglasses on anyway, my gold standard sunglasses, so you wouldn't see me. But this is sick and demented. So this is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., right? And he was the uh, son of Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who was the eugenicist. And look what his son has become. So they talk about us, you know, breeding and then having kids that are horrible and terrible because, you know, we're unemployable. So our kids will be unemployable. Look at the monster that his father was, and then look at the monster he become. That he became. I'm sorry, I'm feeble-minded. No, folks, I'm a little torn up on this. I mean, it's sick. It's disgusting. You talk about debating abortion in the first, second, third trimester. Look at what was going on here 100 years ago in the United States. And we want to sit here and pretend we have the moral high ground. 
forces this woman who was raped to be sterilized, and he looks at her mother, her, and her child. Three generations of imbeciles are enough because I'm an elitist and a Harvard Law School professor. Unbelievable. In the same week, the Supreme Court decided Buck v. Bell. Harvard made eugenics news of its own. It turned down a $60,000 bequest from Dr. J. Ewing Mears, a Philadelphia surgeon, to fund instruction in eugenics, quote, in all branches, notably that branch relating to the treatment of the defective and criminal classes by surgical procedures, end quote. Harvard's decision reported on the front page of the New York Times appeared to be a counterweight to the Supreme Court's ruling, but the university's decision had been motivated more by reluctance to be coerced into a particular position on sterilization than by any institutional opposition to eugenics, which it continued to embrace, right? Eugenics followed much the same arc at Harvard as it did in the nation at large. Interest began to wane in the 1930s as the field became more closely associated with the Nazi government that had taken power in Germany. By the end of the decade, Davenport had retired and the ERO had shut down. The Carnegie Institution, of which it was part, no longer wanted to support eugenics research and advocacy. As the nation went to war against a regime that embraced racism, eugenics increasingly came to be regarded as un-American. And that is all a total lie. We took the Nazis in after World War II. You know this. We covered Operation Paperclip. We continued with Nazi MK Ultra experiments right down the street from me at Fort Detrick under the guidance of CIA Director Alan Dulles. The airport I went to to pick up my mother-in-law yesterday is Dulles Airport, named after him. He oversaw the MKUltra program. Sidney Gottlieb, the chief chemist of the CIA, was trained by Nazis and Japanese torturers. So to say that this practice ended and died with Adolf Hitler is a complete and total lie. It is a farce. It is fake. This is fake news. It never ended. It never faded. It rebranded. When I get back, I'm going to continue this. We're going to finish up this article. But then we're going to go down a long path of showing you how this just evolved. It just rebranded. It's gotten worse, ladies and gentlemen. It's gotten worse because these madmen, these Frankenstein doctors, have access to even more technology now. They can actually pull this off, just like with technocracy. They could not do those energy certificates back in 1933, but they can pull it off today in the form of central bank digital currency. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Sick stuff, folks. Sick stuff. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold, folks. This is why I do this show in part. I want to educate you on the true history of our country and the world so you understand where all this stuff comes from we see klaus schwab we see yuval Noah harari we see elon musk talking about this stuff now we think it just came 
from three days ago. No, folks, this stuff is deep-rooted in our country, in our culture, in our society, and it's spread far and wide because they, as they admit here in Harvard Magazine, the books that these psychopaths were writing were distributed amongst other colleges and into one-third of high school programs, and so generations of young people uh, impressionable young minds were indoctrinated with this idea of eugenics. And I'm not so much talking about, you know, quizzes and tests to bring in the right type of immigrants. I'm talking about the forced sterilization and essentially killing people, just murdering people that they deem to be unfit. All right, let's pick back up with the last sentence. It said, as the nation went to war against a regime that embraced racism, eugenics increasingly came to be regarded as un-American. Yeah, it's un-American. Un-American, although we were doing it, we were practicing it, we sterilized this poor girl who was raped. I mean, give me a break. It goes on to say, it did not, however, entirely fade away. Speaking of eugenics, at the university... Or nationally, Ernest Hooten, chairman of the anthropology department at Harvard, was particularly outspoken in support of what he called a, quote, biological purge, end quote. In 1936, while the first German concentration camps were opening, he made a major plea for eugenic sterilization, though he emphasized that it should not target any race or religion. Okay, let's keep the uh, concentration camps going. We'll just say it's not about race or religion, and then it'll be fine. How about we just sterilize one out of every two people? We'll just randomly select them, like at the airport when they're doing a luggage check. Hey, you, get over here, Grandma. You're going to be sterilized. Hey, it doesn't matter. I can't have kids. Well, we're still going to do it. It goes on to say, Hooten believed it was imperative for society to remove its, quote, worthless, end quote, people. Quote, our real purpose, quote, he declared in a speech that was quoted in the New York Times, quote, should be to segregate and to eliminate the unfit, worthless, degenerate, and antisocial portion of each racial and ethnic strain in our population so that we may utilize the substantial merits of its sound majority and the special and diversified gifts of its superior members, end quote. This is chairman of the anthropology department at Harvard in 1936. I mean, could you imagine if someone said something like this? Oh, wait a minute. Yuval Noah Harari, the king philosopher of the World Economic Forum and the Force Industrial Revolution. He talks like this. Oh, yeah, he talks like this, folks. Think about it. Our real purpose should be to segregate and to eliminate the unfit, worthless, degenerate, and antisocial portion of each racial and ethnic strain in our population so that we may utilize the substantial merits of its sound majority and the special and diversified gifts of its superior members. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. What do you think all the data they're collecting on everyone is? It's so that they can deem you unfit. How are they going to pick these people out? They're going to go through all the groups of Chinese, all the groups of Jewish, all the groups of whites, Europeans, Italians, 
whatever they want to go through each group, they're going to pick out the ones they deem to be worthless members of society. Meanwhile, this is coupled with their policies, like instituting a minimum wage to drive low-wage workers out of the workforce so they could deem them to be unemployable and unfit and then kill them or sterilize them. Come on, folks. This is social engineering to fit the social control system. Remember, if you don't fit into the system that they're designing, if you're an inefficient human engine, as the technocrats would put it, you will be eliminated. You will be eliminated. So this is, uh, this is real history. I don't think they taught you this in eighth grade. But uh, if if they did, I would be surprised. If they did, they were probably telling you this was good. It was a good thing. Hey, kids, we used to sterilize people. We don't do that anymore. We just call it abortion. But uh, this is mad. This is mad stuff we're looking at. Goes on to say, none of the news out of Germany after the war made Hooten abandon his views. Quote, there can be little doubt of the increase during this past 50 years of mental de- uh, defectives, psychopaths, criminals, economic incompetence, and the chronically diseased, end quote, he wrote in Red Book magazine in 1950. Quote, we owe this to the intervention of charity, welfare, and medical science, and to the reckless breeding of the unfit, end quote. We owe it to these people. We owe it to ourselves, folks. We owe it to ourselves and so we'll get into eventually margaret sanger and the free love abortion movement because that plays right into all this stuff they just had to start calling eugenics by a different name they had to have another means so this time they wanted to institute uh, family planning uh, abortions um uh all types of uh of new things they can rebrand, rebrand, and then be able to have a softer sell on this stuff. It goes on to say, the United States also held on to eugenics, if not as enthusiastically as it once did. In 1942, with the war against the Nazis raging, the Supreme Court had a chance to overturn Buck v. Bell and hold eugenic sterilization unconstitutional, but it did not. The court struck down an Oklahoma sterilization law, but on extremely narrow grounds, leaving the rest of the nation's eugenic sterilization laws intact. Only after the civil rights revolution of the 1960s and changes in popular views toward marginalized groups did eugenic sterilization begin to decline more rapidly. But states continued to sterilize the, quote, unfit, end quote, until 1981. Now, I will say... This part of eugenics, the sterilization stuff, possibly, possibly was replaced with things like massive use of vaccines and big pharmaceuticals. So we'll eventually get into that. I have written down, I don't know, 50 or 60 notes uh, in different areas that I'm currently researching all the branches that come out of this because when they get rid of something like sterilization it's not because they decided that it was a bad idea and they changed their ways and they realized that they were horrible people it's because they came up with another solution to their problem 
Okay, it goes on to say, today, the American eugenics movement is often thought of as an episode of national folly, like 1920s dance marathons or prohibition, with little harm done. In fact, the harm it caused was enormous. As many as 70,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized for eugenic reasons, while important members of the Harvard community cheered, and as with Elliot, Lowell, and Holmes, called for more. Many of those 70,000 were simply poor or had done something that a judge or social worker didn't like or, as in Carrie Buck's case, had terrible luck. Their lives were changed forever. Buck lost her daughter to illness and died childless in 1983, not understanding until her final years what the state had done to her or why she had been unable to have more children. Does this not make you sick to your stomach? Does this not make you sick to your stomach, folks? And you think about what these people are doing today, and I venture to guess you're going to see a rise in folks, young kids, that reach their 20s and their 30s and are unable to have children or healthy children. I can see that coming because the people running the show today are no different than the people running the show of yesteryear, except now they have access to more Frankenstein technology. And they're even crazier, folks, because it's multiple generations of crazy at this point. Goes on to say, also affected were the many people kept out of the country by the eugenically inspired immigration laws of the 1920s. Among them were a large number of European Jews who desperately sought to escape the impending Holocaust. A few years ago, correspondence was discovered from 1941 in which Otto Frank pleaded with the U.S. State Department for visas for himself, his wife, and his daughters, Margot and Anne. It is understood today that Anne Frank died because the Nazis considered her a member of an inferior race, but few appreciate that her death was also due in part to the fact that many in the U.S. Congress felt the same way. And that kind of stuff, I'm not going to touch on it, folks, because it's such that is such a touchy subject, and I would imagine we have sort of a mixed audience here. That's something I would have to spend several episodes on, and I can't do it out here on the public side. Eventually, when we get things worked out with pain.tv slash gold, I'll be doing some uh, premium shows over there. We can get into discussions like this. I'm always going to be very careful, though. I, you know, it's... And I have to tell you, the more that we're reading about this stuff, you you can't, if you're being honest with yourself, it is not one group of people that are driving everything. There are sick, evil people in all walks of life, folks. They're all over the place. We're covering so many different psychos in our history that are on board with essentially the engineering of humanity out of existence. That's what this is all about, ladies and gentlemen. It says there are important reasons for remembering and further exploring Harvard's role in eugenics. Colleges and universities today are increasingly interrogating their past, thinking about what it means to have a Yale residential college named after John C. Calhoun, a Princeton school named after Woodrow Wilson, or slaveholder Isaac Royal's coat of arms on the Harvard Law School shield and his name on a professorship endowed by his will. 
Eugenics is a part of Harvard's history. It is unlikely that Elliott House or Lowell House will be renamed, but there might be a way for the university community to spare a thought for Carrie Buck and others who paid a high price for the harmful ideas that Harvard affiliates played a major role in propounding. There are also forward-looking reasons to revisit this dark moment in the university's past. Biotechnical science has advanced to the brink of a new era of genetic possibilities. In the next few years, the headlines will be full of stories about gene editing technology, genetic solutions for a variety of human afflictions and frailties, and even, quote, designer babies, end quote. Given that Harvard affiliates again will play a large role in all of these, it is important to contemplate how wrong so many people tied to the university got it the first time, and to think hard about how, this time, to get it right. Oh, really? So this time, you're going to get it right? This time, we should trust these elitists, these royal pigs at Harvard to get it right? Folks, it never ended. We are just in the next phase of eugenics. We are in the next phase of sterilization. Of course, this time they're doing it in a Petri dish with a number of your embryos, embryos killing the ones that they deem to be unfit and giving life to the one that they deem to be fit. And supposedly it is your choice this time. It is your choice to choose the right embryo. Ladies and gentlemen, when I get back, closing thoughts on this, you're going to want to stick around. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. Folks, now you know the history of Harvard's involvement in eugenics. And it only took one episode to do that, folks. What we're going to do tomorrow is I am going to show you what Harvard is up to today. I'm going to show you who's involved with some of the new eugenics slash transhumanism experiments going on at Harvard because it's going to blow your mind. Actually, it probably won't blow your mind because you are a well-educated, well-informed audience, and I think you can probably guess some of the people that are involved with what's going on at Harvard now. I want to wrap up this show with this little piece I found. It's at evolutionnews.org. This is Evolution News and Science Today. I thought this person, Wesley J. Smith, did a fantastic job. This is transhumanism is pure eugenics. And Wesley J. Smith wrote the first piece when Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, came out in support of transhumanism on the show with Richard Grinnell saying, we will be the last generation to die or the first generation to live forever. And I reached out to Wesley J. Smith. We had a conversation. He was going to come on the show, and then I never heard from him. So I'm going to reach back out to him because I ran into this piece, and I thought it was, uh, frankly, fantastic. And it sums up um, kind of everything we discussed tonight. 
And I think that it's an important message to leave you with because this episode, I think, was so dark. We didn't really talk about solutions in this episode, but this was written in April 2022, so not that long ago. The title is Transhumanism is Pure Eugenics. It says transhumanism boiled down to its bones is pure eugenics. It calls itself H+, for more or better than human, which, of course, is what eugenics is all about. Alarmingly, transhumanist values are being embraced at the highest strata of society, including in big tech, in universities, and among the Davos crowd of globalist would-be technocrats. That being so, it is worth listening in to what they are saying under the theory that forewarned is forearmed. Useless people. Israeli philosophy professor Yuval Harari is one of the movement's chief uh, proselytizers. He believes that AI-human hybrids are inevitably going to take over, and that those of us who refuse to join our minds with these computer programs will come to be considered a, quote, useless class, end quote, or even, quote, useless people, end quote. From the Miami Standard story, Harari went on to say that humanity is in the midst of a, quote, second industrial revolution, end quote, centered around artificial intelligence, quote, but the product this time will not be textiles or machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product this time will be humans themselves, end quote, Harari asserted. Quote, we are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to be, I think, the two main products of the next wave of all these changes, end quote. The, quote, useless people, end quote, referenced by the World Economic Forum advisor, would be those who refuse to be injected with artificial intelligence capabilities in the coming decades. Describing humans as, quote, hackable animals, end quote, Harari believes that, quote, the masses, end quote, would, quote, not stand much of a chance, end quote, against these changes even if they were to organize. Ah, the old, quote, resistance is futile, end quote, gambit. What will happen to, quote, useless people, end quote. Quote, the problem is more boredom. What to do with them? And how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless, end quote, Harari continued. Quote, my best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games, end quote. Caesar would approve. It is tempting to fall prey to such nihilism, but resistance is not futile. If we continually remind ourselves that no human life is ever, quote, meaningless, end quote, or, quote, worthless, end quote. And even if Harari is right, that we will eventually devolve into a brave new world caste system, the unenhanced still would retain the most important and powerful human characteristic of all, the ability to love. Love isn't something the transhumanists generally talk much about. I think that's because it can't be generated by taking a pill, editing genes, or melding with a computer algorithm. It isn't transactional. The ability to love comes from being loved and practicing the virtues. No high-tech shortcuts. How boring. 
This is transhumanism's fatal flaw. To paraphrase, uh, to paraphrase a great saint, quote, if I blend with an AI computer program and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have enhanced cap- uh, capacities that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing, end quote. Let me repeat that because it's wonderful. It says, if I blend with an AI computer program and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have enhanced capabilities that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Thank you, Wesley J. Smith, for writing this incredible piece because it is so true, and love ties into the soul. The scientists will tell you that love is only a release of endorphins, and so they can hack that too, folks. These are the scientists, the engineers, the economists, the technologists, the madmen who believe they are God, who believe they are above you, who believe it is their duty, it is their right. It is their right, but more importantly, it is their duty to weed out the so-called undesirables from society to weed out the unfit to sterilize the unemployable to build a supreme race a pure stock so that they could work more efficiently in their factories so that they will conform to the state control power of technocracy As you can see, we weave together technocracy and eugenics. We're putting the pieces together for you. I'm continuing to go through the documents I found on Howard Scott and the original technocracy movement. I'm bringing in what I'm learning about the brain trust that helped develop FDR's New Deal, which ushered in many elements of technocracy. I'm going to dismantle all of this, folks. This is my mission. I'm going to show you how they socially engineered us, how they changed our culture and forced us into this adoption of technocracy. And now we see transhumanism. I'm going to show exactly how this was done because it's very important for my child to understand this, to know the true history of the world in which he lives under. I am not going to teach him, as my wife and I are going to homeschool, I'm not going to teach him the fake history. There is no point in doing that. I'm going to teach him the real history about where he lives and why he is living underneath this system. Although they haven't written about this in the history books yet, the truth has not been told. I will continue to figure it out here at the Dustin Gold Standard, and I will lay it out for you each and every night. As I find new information, I connect more dots, I string together new pieces, and I put this puzzle together. There is no point in lying to your children. There is no point at 7, 8, 9, 10 years old telling them that Santa Claus is coming down the chimney when you know damn well that that is a complete and total lie. Your children need to understand the reality in which they live in so that they have a fighting chance at surviving it. And hopefully not just surviving it, but thriving within it. Either they are going to make a choice to live inside the matrix, knowing damn well that it is a matrix because you were honest with them. 
or they are going to join with other people and try to break away from the matrix. Maybe living one foot in it and one foot out of it, maybe trying to withdraw completely and all together, living close to what the Amish do, or maybe even more extreme than that. But it is not fair to lie to your children. I have decided that we are going to raise our son to know everything from Amish to computer programming. And that way, when he turns 13, 14, 15, and starts to be able to make decisions for himself about what direction he wants to go in, he will be prepared for what is to come. If he turns 18 and he decides he wants a brain chip and he's going to go live inside the metaverse, so be it. That is a choice he made, but he will be as well prepared as possible to thrive inside of the metaverse. If he decides he's going to withdraw from the system and go form a breakaway civilization or live on the one that hopefully I'm able to be part of in the coming years, then so be it. If he decides he wants to grow an Abe Lincoln beard and go live with the Amish, then so be it. It will be his choice, but it is my duty as his father to prepare him for all options. From surviving off the land to working for the man inside of the metaverse. So the more we understand this, the more realistic we can be about the decisions that we have to make, that we will be forced to make in the coming years. Wesley Smith here said that it is not... Uh, it is not too late to fight back. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I am fighting back by speaking out against it here at the show. But I know the solution is not to get on a white horse and ride into Washington, D.C. with a pitchfork and a musket. That's not going to do anyone any good. The first phase of the solution process is to educate educate yourself and educate others i am still educating myself i need to put these pieces of the puzzle together and i am sharing that information with you and hopefully you are taking this information and sharing it with others around you spread the word spread the word because whether it be six months from now nine months from now a year from now we are maybe going to get together and start to figure out how to build this breakaway community. But we need to get more people on board with this way of thinking to really understand the truth of this matrix that we live inside. Even back 92 episodes ago when I talked about the matrix, living one foot in and one foot out, I wasn't totally convinced that it was here yet. But 93 episodes in, three months into this show, going back into the history of technocracy, rereading documents that I haven't looked at in five or ten years, I've come to the realization that we are inside of it. It is our culture. We are all part of it. And unfortunately, it's pretty damn hard to escape it. But at some point, we are going to have to pull that ejection cord and escape it if that's truly what we want. We're going to need to stop talking about it and actually start to lay out plans for how we are going to exit this system. Ladies and gentlemen, join me tomorrow. I'm going to show you who is behind the current transhumanist movement at Harvard University. It will be the truth. It will show you that eugenics programs there never actually ended. Our history is completely fake. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv.
Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.